This episode of Troxel is supported by Arc Vision. Save 5% off anything and everything, including any type of license of the just-released Rhino version 8 when you buy from arcvision.com store and use code TRXL at checkout. That's A-R-C-H-V-I-S-I-O-N dot com slash store and use code TRXL at checkout and save 5% off your entire order. Just make sure you do it before December 31st, 2023. This episode is brought to you by Troxel Plus Membership. Learn about the benefits of membership and get your limited time launch offer savings at trxl.co slash launch 20. There's no spaces in that trxl.co slash launch 20. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Troxel podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. In this episode, I welcome Hovar Voshaug. He may be checking notes here. Uh, he is the first Viking to come on the show. Hovart loves building and implementing better tools for the AEC industry together with fun people and converts that passion as value for their community and clients as a serial entrepreneur, having founded and co-founded Anchor, Reope, and Bad Monkeys. After recording this session, Hovart and I had lunch together at Autodesk University, which has now come and gone, but we didn't talk about the subjects you might think. And I know he won't mind me saying this here. It was about our personal lives, relationships, mental health and training, fitness, and other topics in that realm. In other words, we talked about the things that really matter, and it was fantastic, and I really valued our time together. When I originally reached out to Hovart about coming on the show, he asked what we'd be talking about, and I said one word, anger before hitting record when we did the podcast, and then again at the table at AU, he reiterated, you had me at anger. Of course, we talked about it in this episode. Hovart says that having had two breakdowns during his time as an entrepreneur, he's developed an interest due to pure necessity in dedicating time to mental training and fitness. We talked about strategies and shared interests in the work Andrew Huberman and Sam Harris, among others, are doing in the area of breathing exercises, cool water exposure, meditation, physical exercise, sleep, time away from social media and connected devices, and more. In this episode, we talk about why Hovart is so passionate about what he does, which was of particular interest to me and was first brought to my attention when I saw his hiring video posted to YouTube, which I have a link to in the show notes. He tells the story of his journey in architecture, first working at Snoeta, then moving into AEC Tech with the Bad Monkeys, Reope, and now Anchor. We chat a lot about why it's healthy to be dissatisfied, mad even, at the software we all use. We also cover the topics of change management, BIM and the necessity of consistent quality data, and the problems he and the team are currently solving at Anchor regarding the use of BIM in operations and facilities management. Finally, we conclude with a discussion on the future of BIM and the potential for liberating architects and engineers from data management tasks and bad software. This was a fantastic conversation with Hovar, and I came away from it feeling energized and really excited to share it with you. 
I hope you'll not only find value in it for yourself, but that you'll help add value to the profession by sharing it with your network. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts for the show. And don't forget, you can now leave me feedback at the link in the show notes. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Hovar Voshaug. Hovard, welcome to the podcast, and and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, Evan. I'm looking forward to our conversation. You have some opinionated views on the AEC industry, right? <laughs> the face. <laughs> no, you you own that. I mean, it's it's there's no apologies. And I I remember watching a video. You did a hiring video that you put up on YouTube. And in that video, you are looking for people who have a, a similar bent on the industry because you want to see change happen, right? You're looking for people, and I'm going to crib from my notes here, who are angry and dissatisfied with the status quo. You're, you, you are looking for people who are mad at the software that we all have to use and are passionate about change. And I think those things kind of, they you embody that because you're you want to see things get better and i mean and that is really why we critique our industry right is is because it's not like we're unfairly being critical of it but and you much more than me uh you're you're outspoken in that way because you're so passionate about change i would love to know where that comes from and so maybe in order to get there tell us what how you've gotten to where you are in our industry and through your, through your trajectory through life? Yeah. Um, it's always a little bit difficult to figure out where you start um, because it can be so many different places um, in, in my life. I remember I have a I have a beautiful fiance at home whom I met at a BIM conference actually in Dublin um, uh, years ago. We just gave birth to a, a beautiful daughter last week, uh, which I already shared with you. Crazy. So it's yeah, been right. eventful a uh, couple of days. But uh, home with my fiance right now is my mom, and and my mom was explaining to. Uh, I remember one time a few years ago, my mom was explaining to my fiance. Uh, how is Hobart? You know what? What am I like? And I think she gave like a really short and accurate summary: is that I'm curious and creative and passionate and angry. And uh, <laughs> 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 I, I I don't know. I should probably talk to someone about that. Um, someone pro <laughs> professional. This is this is a therapy session right yeah, here. Yeah, it yeah. often is. Uh, well, yeah, you have an like, education. Let's talk through it. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it helps. Maybe I uh, wake up uh, tomorrow morning and feel like a, a, a burden off my shoulders. I don't know where that anger comes from. Like, honestly, I can remember it from all the way, like uh, for as long as I can remember, uh, mm. even from my childhood, whether it was a friend who didn't want to do what I did uh, or there was something I was trying to do that didn't work. Um, always get like get 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 pretty mad. It probably has something to mm. do with my mom and dad, and we don't have to go into the, <laughs> into that. <laughs> I think most things have to do uh, sure. with your 
background and childhood. But sure. like I, I was always, I was always frustrated with. I would e I would get easily frustrated with what I was doing, especially if it was like boring and um, re repetitive and and the manual, and always curious about what could be better. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that that got its manifestation in CAD and BIM and this like 3D design space because I was never a computer guy. I, uh, I liked computer games mm -hmm. as a kid, but I it was all like coincidences that led me into the CAD and BIM world. Um, I guess I liked it because it reminded me of things that I liked as a kid, playing with Legos and using the creativity. But yeah, I would always get annoyed when something was not working and, and get like when something was clearly suboptimal, um, mm -hmm. really trying hard uh, to, you know, push through uh, and and try to figure out a way to do it. And I suppose when we made that recruitment video, um, what happened, this is a few years ago, and, and that really is a funny side story, but that really changed, turned everything upside down for us. Um, mm. Because I think it really struck a nerve. Um, and what was happening in that recruitment video is that, of course, I'd written a script before, together with a creative mm. director and a cinematographer, and uh, we were going to have talking points. Um, and uh, the lady, Jordan is her name. I, she was the creative director of that session. She kept poking me because she couldn't really see the passion. I was reading from a script and like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I started getting annoyed with her poking me. And I think we did like 10, 11 recordings. And then, uh, and, and then I just kind of, I didn't let the script go completely, but uh, I, I kind of went uh, off, uh, off track and, uh, and, uh, and poked into that uh, anger. Um, so yeah, I, th I think people liked it a little bit because it felt something real and it felt real to me when I was talking about it. And, and uh, I've been trying to use that to do constructive things, mm -hmm. I suppose. That anger can be destructive, mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. Like, as everyone knows, you can channel that drive to different things. And I try to channel it to, to good things. And, and that, for me, over the years, has become trying to improve processes in AC, I suppose, like digital design processes. The, the difference between being cynical and like attracting other cynical people and going down, you know, that's a, that goes very far. It goes very deep. If it's like a spiral, the downward spiral, and then there's channeling that into passion to make things better and using it as a catalyst, but then leaving it behind and saying, how can we make this better? Those are two very different paths. And so I'm sure you have to be very discerning with the kind of people who raise their hand after seeing a video like that, because you're going to get both kinds of responses. Yeah. You're going to get people who are like, yeah, the world is on fire. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's talk about how bad it is and just keep talking about how bad it is. 
versus the people who are like, yep, it's screwed up. We're going to fix it. And and so I'm I'm interested from a people perspective, because one thing I noticed with you is that on LinkedIn, you're posting pictures of people, the people that you meet, the people that are on your team, the people that are making a difference. And so clearly you've chosen the path of like, how, how can we as people who are like purposed make this a better situation, not just for us, not just for Anchor and Reopen, you know, the, the companies that you're participating in, but but for the industry, I'm interested from a people perspective, how you're discerning the difference so that you can get the right people, the best people on your team to catalyze a better future. In different ways, I would say over the years, we've changed our processes. Uh, every time we do a recruitment campaign and every time there's a chance to hire someone, that process has changed. I think the first time I ever hired someone, it was someone that I knew very well. They were already like, his name is Jostein, already kind of like a dynamo person in the, in the global dynamo community. So it was like a no brainer to hire him. Um, and then as we matured as companies and organizations, I think our process uh, also uh, matured and changed. So way back then, when we kind of went viral with that first recruitment campaign, that was actually triggered by the fact that Jostein, my first employee, he, uh, he uh, told me he's leaving. And I kind of freaked out and said, let's do a... <laughs> <laughs> Let's let's do a, a campaign and see if anyone is out there. And there were a lot of people out there. I think we we got we. I was massively overwhelmed with the amount of applications, and mm. I still meet people uh, at conferences who approach me and say, "Hey, I I applied for a job at your company and I didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry." <laughs> I was totally overwhelmed yeah. uh, then. I think yeah. uh, probably close to 200 applications. And we're all like PDFs and emails and I didn't have any system to handle it. So I suppose mm, over the years, I've learned that it's, it's good to rely on other people in the organization to do the evaluation together with you because uh, I'm a gut feeling person. Mm -hmm. I'll talk to mm -hmm. you maybe two, three times and then get a gut feeling. Of course, after like a screening process where you're looking at the background and trying to figure out what 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 kind of work you have and will they be happy doing it. But mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not so easy to do it alone, to figure out alone uh, if you just uh, find someone who is just complaining and who don't want to really contribute to anything, just like maybe socializing with like-minded people. Uh, right. Or if you want to, if, if you're talking to someone who actually wants to contribute. I think in that one recruitment video that we're talking about now a few times, I mentioned specifically that I was looking for angry people who wanted to channel that anger into something positive. So I yes. kind of hope also that did some filtering, but yeah. I'm very happy that recruitment or like, I don't know if I love that word so much, but reaching out to people and getting people to join your, on your campaign 
uh, mm-hmm. is something that I think that we've been able to do quite successfully. Not 100%. I don't think anyone does it 100%. But that, that part we got right. This episode is made possible in collaboration with ArcVision. Are you planning on getting software before the year ends? Maybe you need to use your budget in 2023 or want to upgrade to something new like the just released Rhino version 8. Rhino 8 introduces amazing new tools for architectural design. One standout feature is the push-pull tools, which are incredibly powerful and even work on curved surfaces. The new inset command and auto seaplane tools enhance the architectural modeling experience. There are also new features like auto-updating clipping section drawings, shrink wrap, which is amazing for 3D printing, and new display types, including a fast and beautiful built-in render engine. Rhino also now supports new Grasshopper data types, and bonus, upgrades from any older version of Rhino are currently 33% off for a limited time. By purchasing anything at arcvision.com store and using the code TRXL at checkout, you can not only support Droxel, but you'll also get 5% off your order. ArcVision is an authorized reseller of Rhino, SketchUp, Enscape, V-Ray, and more. So whether you're a student, an individual practitioner, or part of a firm with multiple licenses, if you're looking to buy architectural software before the end of 2023, visit arcvision.com store and use code TRXL at checkout and save 5% off your order. The link will also be in the show notes. My thanks to ArcVision for collaborating with the Troxel podcast. And now let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting how you describe what you're doing as a campaign. I mean, and and so I think the word recruitment kind of fits because this feels very much like you're trying to build a team, build an army, right, of of like-purposed. And I make the, the distinction between like-minded and like-purposed because I do agree that like like-mindedness, there might be too much latching on to a feeling or an emotion, mm-hmm. but the purpose is what really locks you in step with somebody else when you are trying to make a difference in our industry, for example. Hmm. And this whole idea of you having a campaign for a better future in our industry, I'm interested why that is the path that you've decided to go down. You said earlier you don't even know how it ended up in CAD and BIM and technology. It just, it did. And so, and, but you choose to continue down that path. And so where does that come from? I think it comes from a combination of curiosity and drive. I, again, maybe going back to my mom's image of how I was as a child, Mm. I imagine, though memory gets blurry with the years, I imagine that I was, I would probably as a five-year-old be on the floor all day with like 10,000 pieces of Legos and just building stuff all day long, almost like obsessively um, and never stop and singing well. I I have three brothers and we all like play Legos on the floor uh, singing while we were doing it. So that was a cool social <laughs> thing. That's awesome. That um, cool. And I, I suppose it's the same thing. I know it's, if you interviewed me when I was a five-year-old and asked, hey, five-year-old Hova, why are you doing this? 
I think I'll have a really hard time explaining it. I, mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I like it. It's who you are. Yeah, I like, yeah. like yeah. building new things. I think, it, yeah. So I like building new things. I don't need external motivation when I'm doing it. That just drives mm-hmm. itself. Um, and I absolutely love doing it together with fun people who are also singing like my brothers. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> so, so maybe it's that I, I'm thinking now when I'm explaining this, I'm thinking, oh, you probably I didn't change at all since I was five years old, but hopefully <laughs> you're the same person. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting to think about how you've chosen software mm. and people to do the building with mm. versus things, right? Like making things, making things with your hands that are, you know, analog, physical versus digital, virtual is those are completely different i i honestly i see myself in both worlds very strongly i love figuring out a puzzle in software writing a little bit of code i don't code very much or i love building a a digital model Uh, i love stringing together pieces of software for workflows and automation and but i also just really love making real stuff too Hmm. like i recently moved to southern oregon i've got a shop I'm going to be making, I'm like outfitting it right now so that I can make real stuff. And I do remodeling and I like working on cars. And and so I'm very much in the physical and the digital world when it comes to being creative. And I often see myself in my identity more in the physical world of making than in the digital world. But the honest truth is I'm way more making things in the digital world, like mm. podcasts like this, making content, things like that. Um, so it's funny because I always want the thing that I'm not doing the most of. I, I, most people of I think life. are like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? If you have curly hair, you want straight hair. If you, It's like it, it, it's always the thing that you're not doing, I think, that that you long for, at least in my in my experience. And so you, you've gone the people and the, the – <clears throat> you've gone the people and the software side of things – Versus the Lego side of things, right? And and so you have changed a little bit, but what is it that is so powerful about software and people that has caused you to stay on this path? Well, first of all, I think that I really realized that I liked it. I really, there was something that really hit the nerve inside of me the first time I realized that there was something I can do on the keyboard and the mouse that turned my 2D AutoCAD into a 3D model. I I think I can remember that time because that's how it happened. Mm, That was the aha moment. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Mm. Three dimensions and this looks like my Legos. And I was kind of, I was not a computer guy, but I was kind of like, yeah, liked liked playing computer games, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. And then uh, this happened at the same time as I was having like a real hard time getting motivated for more and more and more advanced theoretical calculations in structural engineering school. I was in the university. I was getting a master's in structural engineering. The first years were easy peasy. It was like math and physics and you know, some science, even philosophy, and uh, like being curious. Mm-hmm. That was, 
I remember I had like social anthropology and I really found that fascinating. And then w when I got to my like third, fourth year, uh, it started getting really, really uh, heavy on the engineering structural calculation. Um, and uh, and then I was just like, oh, fading out. Oh my God, this is not, this is not me. You know, imagine the Lego guy on the floor singing and then mm. calculation, calculating, calculating all this math. Yeah. And I, and so around the same time, uh, like everything in my life is a co coincidence. I, I, I don't know how to say it in any other way, but I had a friend who said like this, you should check out this professor up here in Trondheim uh, in a place called Tiholt, and uh, I did, and, and it was 3D modeling. It was the first time I saw 3D modeling. I was already exposed to CAD due to like summer internships. Mm. Um, and then when I, uh, when this professor said we were going to 3D model something and I, I started poking around in AutoCAD and 3ds Max, um, there was something there that really struck a nerve. I, I liked it. I, I liked it a lot more than structural calculations. So then, blah, 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 you know, we could probably uh, uh, talk about that for like a week. But uh, uh, <laughs> long story short, I get into working, become a structural engineer. Guess what? The calculations are still as boring as they were before. And, uh, and uh, my ex-girlfriend broke up with me. I had to move. A friend of mine said there's a job available at this like uh, AutoCAD training center. And uh, I took that job and started doing courses in uh, 3D modeling in AutoCAD. So that, that's how I got into it. But uh, yeah, I think I just really, I liked computers. I liked, I'm kind of like also a person who likes to live in like a fantasy world. I like seeing movies. I like reading books. I like interstellar, like movies like that. Um, mm -hmm. So doing whatever I can do inside a computer also fed that passion, I suppose. You know, the, the Legos were great, but they had obvious limitations, you know, gravity and uh, stuff like that. And then I dug a bunch of snow caves around my mom's house when I was a kid also has limitations, structural limitations and thermal <laughs> right. limitations. So that like being able to live that fantasy world inside of 3D software where you could do anything and made a bunch mm -hmm. of things explode in 3ds Max. I, Kind of, mm -hmm. I kind of like that. So that is that. That's uh, these are the triggers, I suppose, that I can see now. You know, then Looking I wasn't back. aware of what was happening. But sure. yeah. when you when you look back, you see very clearly the moments that made you go to A instead of B, and then make these choices. Right. Sliding right. doors. It's it's interesting to me that it reminds me of the there's this old chart that I've seen online where it scientists had mapped different species of animals and it was like I can't remember what the criteria were but it was like humans were were very low I think it had to do something with speed um, and so you know there's like cheetahs and falcons and there's these animals that are 
doing incredible things. And then there's humans, right? But then, but then there was the one anomaly was humans with a bicycle on this chart. And it was like, if a human's on a bike and obviously it's all analog, they're pushing themselves, but they can achieve, you know, compared to what they can without it, it's no competition. And so he was using, Steve Jobs was using this analogy as for the computer, right? And saying, it's like, it's like a bicycle for the mind, right? It's not like a bicycle for your mobility. It's, it's for your mind. And what you're talking about is this artist palette that can do, that can make you anything that you want to be, right? You, mm. you could blow things up in 3ds max, right? You can, you apply those modifiers and those plugins. And all of a sudden you're a, you're a visual effects artist, maybe at the lowest rung of the ladder, but you're still working your way towards something or you're drawing, you're, you're drawing floor plans for architecture or you're painting, or, you know, there's so many different things that you can use this tool for. And it is so easy to manipulate just by changing whatever piece of software you're using, mm. you can actually do all of those things mm. also, right? Yeah. That to me is the, the hardest part is picking one thing, right? There's, I want to do all the things. <laughs> I want to do all of them. And, and it's, it's really interesting to think about this tool that inspires you to then make a difference in an industry right and to use it as a tool to make a difference in an industry like one of the things that you said in that hiring video was you want people who are mad at the software that is probably their livelihood right mm -hmm. and why why would I, i'm gonna let you answer this question why should some why should someone step back from their day-to-day -day, their you know i've got to use this tool to get this job done why should they step back and actually like take a look at the landscape of their life and say, you know what, this is suboptimal and I should not accept this. Why, why, why do you want people who to step back and look at that? Because I think this is kind of the key that gets us into the next segment of hmm. the conversation, which is what you are doing about it and, and how you're going about that. But, but why is it that people need to step back and actually evaluate the current situation of the things that they're doing every day and, and why they should not accept that? I don't think that everyone will. And I, I don't expect yeah. <laughs> that everyone is as uh, driven as me about uh, the tools that we are using. Luckily, there are still a lot of architects and engineers who care about architecture and engineering uh, and maybe less about the the design and documentation tools. I mean, um, I suppose it depends a little bit about who you want to be and what kind of life you want. I think that if you're a person who is curious and who is open to new things, um, it really makes sense for me to make this one life that I have on the planet to be about something meaningful to me mm. uh, that I I just don't go around life and just do what is put in front of me. Oh, here's mm. your computer. Here's your rabbit. Here's your thing. Go to work. 
And I'm totally mm-hmm. fine with people wanting that. Like I have friends who go to work at nine o'clock in the morning and then go home at 4.30 and then like that. It's just, you know, this is to get money. Um, mm-hmm. But if you are not that kind of person, if you're a person who actually, you know, maybe we all have that work thing in our life. You know, the you have family, you have friends, you have cats, you have uh, work. Uh, and that work is like somewhere on your importance bar. And for me, it's quite high. Um, I care about my work. I care very deeply about what I'm doing. And if and if you do that, then I think it's uh, it. You should uh, not always just take the easy way, um, but poke into what's more difficult. The easy thing is to consider continuous always and as normal, and don't say anything. Be quiet. Do your job go home and it's more difficult of course to to um, shake things up and to step back and and look at the landscape and do and try to do something about it absolutely forge a different path yeah mm. and it speaks back to that intrinsic motivation that you talked about earlier and being able to figure out the path as you go versus just sitting back waiting to be told what to do like those are two very different mindsets and there's actually a really great book called Mindset. I think it's by Carol Dweck. And it really talks about intrinsic motivation in versus external motivation and how there's, you can't, people who do not have intrinsic motivation cannot become intrinsically motivated without their themselves trying to make that happen, right? It has to come from within, hmm. which is like a, this is a, what do they call that? It's like it's like that. That's probably not going to happen, right? Because because if there's no intrinsic motivation, you can't get motivated to become intrinsically motivated. You, there are people who only accept external motivation, and I, it I is. Think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I I don't think I've read the entire book, but I think one of Carol Dweck's points is that you can create the cultures uh, for mm-hmm. people around you. Uh, uh, that makes it easier for them to uh, tap into that passion. (laughs) Right, right. And, And I mean, the truth is, is that not everybody should be one or the other, right? I mean, there's, I think that might be a point of confusion is, is that we, we see it as the right way, whatever the way is that you're representing in this case. And therefore other people should follow the right way. But the truth is you need, you need both people. Right. Mm-hmm. In a business, especially, you need both people. You need the people who show up every day and don't complain and do the thing that needs to be done. And then they leave whatever mm-hmm. le- leaving time is. And But they're so consistent and they just do it day after day after day. They make the space for people like you to do what you do. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a very important thing to say out loud, which is to say, like, no, we don't all need to be the entrepreneur. We don't all need to be the innovator. We can't. I mean, that we've all seen the innovator curve, right? <laughs> we've all seen too many times. There's a very small percentage of people at the front end of that curve, and there's a small percentage at the back end of that curve, but most people are in the middle. And it's it's one of those things. I shouldn't say, did I say adopter curve or innovator curve? It's the adoption curve, right? Um, but the idea of, of, trying to convince somebody to become something that they're not is like 
where does that go? It goes, it goes nowhere, right? It's uh, it's just one of those things that is just like a rule of life and you have to accept people for who they are. And, but also understand that they add value to the total equation. Yeah. What, however they are wired. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. And if, uh, I, I would never, ever, ever try to force someone to be that person, you know, oh, you should look at what you're doing and you should like uh, uh, innovate or change your tool or whatever. But um, I, uh, so I agree 100%. But I think that maybe that's not the problem. I think maybe the problem is the opposite, that there are people sitting around who have that drive inside, uh, who want to do something, but uh, uh, the step or the immediate opportunities around or the culture around you or like A, B, C, D, E reasons, uh, mm-hmm. they they don't act. Uh, or, you know, maybe you need the security of your job. There can be like so many different reasons why why people are not doing it. So, so I while I, I completely agree, we can't have like just angry innovators. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but I think that we could have a few more, uh, yeah, and that right. wouldn't hurt. This episode is brought to you this week by Troxel Plus Membership. You should become a Troxel Plus member today. Members get some great perks. For instance, you get an ad-free version of the podcast and the show notes, and you can listen to your ad-free feed in whatever podcast app you already use. You'll also get the show notes sent directly to your inbox without ads, which includes all of the links to what we talk about during the episodes, so you'll never miss a thing. The biggest thing about becoming a member is that you'll be directly supporting the reason this show exists, which is to capture long-form conversations with my guests from the architectural community and beyond to have a positive impact on the present and future of the profession. The ad market is pretty bad right now. The podcast would not exist without our members. And for those of you who are one, I am very thankful. So for those of you who are hearing this on the public feed, I hope you'll consider it. For a limited time, there's a special launch offer at trxl.co launch 20. You can check that link in the show notes to get a nice discount if you sign up for the annual membership option. That's trxl.co launch 20, no spaces in there, for a limited time. I'm so thankful for our members, and I hope you'll become one of them. I agree. There's people waiting for permission in some states, right? They're just yeah. they're just sitting around waiting for someone to notice and invite them in. Uh, and and a video like yours, or you know, the the messaging like yours, creates the space for people to say, "Hey, that that's me." And they're that's all they needed to reach mm-hmm. out to you. Like you said, you got two hundred people uh, wanting to apply for that position, yeah. right? And you probably didn't think there was going to be that many applications for that. You probably thought you were on the extreme end and it was going to be a, a, a small f- <laughs> number of people. But it does show you that they are there mm. and they are waiting for the opportunity to to raise their hand, I guess. Yeah. And they, yeah. I didn't think it was going to be that many people. And uh, look, at, at the time, uh, we were four people. Uh, at the company then called Bad Monkeys Norway, and uh, and uh, one of them had quit. <laughs> so, and uh, with this shitty office, uh, this office is much better than than what we had. Uh, so I didn't feel like I had a lot to offer, but we had a growing uh, list of jobs and some really, really, really 
cool people, although few. But uh, you know, when you're when you're three and you get 200 applications, uh, and I ha really have to say, the the level of passion and skills and knowledge among those applications was mind blowing. I was completely knocked awesome. on the floor. So, uh, so, 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 yeah, lucky and good, That's I cool. suppose. Did anybody respond to your video with another video, or was it all like the standard application type thing with with a? A resume PDF. Did anybody make their own video? <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember one. <laughs> that was that, uh, that was a interesting application. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I won't go into the, the details, but uh, yeah, there was one video that I remember fondly. That's cool. I, I I want you to take us through the the timeline of Bad Monkeys and beyond. So maybe yeah. you can. Talk about the last decade. I don't know. You you take us back to wherever you feel like that story starts, and and get us caught up to to where you are now. Yeah, I'll I'll try to do it uh, as short as possible. Um, um, so remember that I'm curious, uh, social. I like building things. I like new things. So. Um, being this like emerging BIM expert in Norway, uh, which I, I was, I started poking into the global BIM communities. I found the, some books, I found some blogs, I went to Autodesk University in 2008. That was uh, an opener in many ways. Hmm. And I was curious about the Revit forum. I haven't been there in a long time, but uh, there were a lot of people who interacted and teaching his, each other how to do different things in Revit back in the day. Um, <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> when, I think even it was in the same year, I'm not sure exactly which year it was, but it was in the first year of um, the conference RTC uh, mm -hmm. had its first European conference. Uh, that that event is now called Built. Um and the first time it was in Europe, it was in Delft in Netherlands. And uh, I met a French guy called Julien Benoit, who was working, mm, don't remember the name of the company, but it doesn't matter. Um, and he had just gotten into Dynamo. So Dynamo was really, really new. Uh, and um, um, I think it was this was even before the Dynamo forums. And around the same time, I met Marcelo Scambaluri, um, the famous AU uh, presenter uh, at AU, and got to know him a little bit. And he was also getting into Dynamo at the time. I think we were all like pushing the limits to what Revit was able to do with the computational modeling tools and all these like adaptive components. Right. Um, so I suppose we were all like curious about Dynamo, but there was no Dynamo forum. Uh, if I remember correctly. So I I figured that it would be good for us to have some place to communicate because there was no one at my company or even in my country who were who was doing this. And I was not a very good programmer, so I, I needed a lot of help and inspiration. So I, I asked uh, Marcelo and Julian if they wanted to do this like group. For me, I remember the 
the inspiration that I had all the way in the beginning was like a bachelor party, how you how you organize a bachelor party. You get people together and then you get them to like interact and communicate about how things are done. So in the beginning, it was a Facebook group. And then what was cool about it was that um, uh, Julian said, not me, Julian said, we should probably invite Andreas Dichmann, the founder of, or the, the creator of the clockwork package in, in Dynamo. And, um, and we did. And then Andreas came on board and he said, we should probably invite this uh, tall Polish guy in New York, Konrad Zoban. And we did. And Konrad say, oh, there's Adam Sheeter in Australia. And Adam said, you should check out Dimitar Venkov. He's in Singapore. And then, <laughs> and that's kind of how it, uh, how it developed organically. And we reached kind of like a critical mass, I suppose, around seven, eight, nine. There were some different people in and out uh, around the time in the beginning. But, um, uh, and then during those first years, on the Dynamo forums and when Dynamo was like spiking at the different conferences, um, we really interacted a lot. Every day, I go back and see those uh, chats and every day it was like long, 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 long chats about different things uh, in Dynamo, in Revit, in the packages and like how we all kind of hated our jobs. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of complaining. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, uh, so we got to know each other pretty well, traveling around in different conferences. We started doing presentations and labs together at conferences. Um, I think we did we did a quadruple lab at Built one time, both me, Julien, Adam, and Marcelo, and. Um, and it it became like a strong group uh, with an identity. And then, of course, it was only a matter of time uh, before some of us started uh, talking about the commercial potential of this uh, thing, uh, the thing that we were doing. So that, mm -hmm. that led to uh, uh, a lot of talks, some blind alleys. Uh, I suppose Bad Monkeys never became a company. At some point in time, I, I think that a lot, uh, uh, quite a few of us were thinking it was going to be. But I uh, um, think this is probably around 2017, 16, 17, 18. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, uh, a few of us were getting a little bit restless. Um, and... Um, I remember meeting Adam Sheeter at uh, one Autodesk University, maybe it was in 17, um, and he was thinking about leaving his company. I was thinking about leaving my company, and we kind of like were talking about it together. And then I went home from AU, a couple of weeks passed, and I was thinking, oh, I, I have to do it. So we ended mm -hmm. up being several Bad Monkeys companies in different mm -hmm. countries, and we were collaborating on some jobs, and we were trying to differentiate geographically. Ge wow, mm -hmm. geographically. Um, mm -hmm. So Conrad would handle North America. Me and Dimitar handle Europe. Dimitar moved to Europe. Uh, Andreas and Julien were not really into the entrepreneurship, so they still there have have their jobs. Um, and Adam uh, started uh, what is now Autonomation in in Australia, and we were all kind of four 
for bad monkeys companies, sometimes collaborating and sometimes not. And then, um, as you can imagine, um, as these companies started growing, uh, it was uh, uh, only a matter of time before we started like doing a little bit of a different things. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was around the time when we were like three, four people here at the Bad Monkeys Company in Norway together with Dimitar, who is still and was then in Bulgaria. Um, is when we we decided to do rebranding in Norway and create Reop, uh, which was, we were supposed to do it when we did the recruitment campaign, we hired a marketing agency and we told them we need the rebranding process. We're called Bad Monkeys, but there's all these other Bad Monkeys companies and we do our thing and we want like another right. entity. Yeah, like want the website to say exactly what we're doing and who we are. Um, and then, as I said before, Justin, my, my, my first employee, he quit and I called the marketing agency and said, hey, 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 hold on. We, we have to wait with the rebranding and do a recruitment first. <laughs> mm. So that was around the same time. And then we launched Reop and, uh, and, and today have a very, very good and peaceful and productive and fun interaction with the different companies in the Bad Monkeys constellation. And actually it's pretty cool is that um, all the people who join our companies and whether they are still in the companies or if they leave, they are still in that group. So I think probably have like 30, 40 people now in the Bad Monkeys group uh, who are all current and former employees or founders mm-hmm. of any of these companies. Yeah, that's cool. And and then I'm glad you brought all that up because it it, it has been confusing from the outside looking in and seeing bad monkeys here, bad monkeys there. And it was like, and Conrad's been on the show and Matt, who was with Autonomation was on the show as well. And I think it's always just been this, we've never gotten to the, I've never asked the right question to get to the bottom of that. So that was, that was great to hear all that. But now you're, so Reop was launched, branded, and now there's Anchor. And so now what's the difference in, in what's going on there? Yeah, um, Reop is the original Bad Monkeys company in Norway, which mm-hmm. basically became, or probably was from day one, a consultancy firm. Um, my, so my, basically my idea, my business idea, from when I was working at Snöhetta, uh, my last like uh, job. Um, was that um, there was a market potential in supporting small and medium-sized architectural firms and engineering firms with development services. Uh, mm. A lot of small firms don't have like a BIM coder department. Right. The big firms, a lot of them do, uh, mm. although there's a lot of complexity around that as well. But um, a lot of people a normal architectural firm with like 30 employees, they normally have like one dynamo guy and maybe one, a few computational designers with Grasshopper. Um, But they have very little support in their organizations to take their code to the next level and build like scalable applications, maybe a Revit add-in or something like that, that you can take out to your colleagues together with documentation. So that was my idea to like offer that service. 
and uh, and I felt that it was always a a great idea because the market was there, the wave of programming architects and engineers was real. Tens of thousands of people were getting into visual programming, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people were having a hard time building, you know, tools that you could use more than once. Um, and uh, I think I said a long time ago on a different podcast that it it was like my idea was that the clients themselves could build a Dynamo script and then send it to us and we would understand the the logic in it immediately because we know Revit, we know Dynamo, we know architecture and engineering. And -hmm. then we could build a scalable application based on it very quickly. And, uh, And yeah, in many ways that's still what we do, still what Reop does. Um, there's also this like funny thing about running a company is that um, I don't think we were ever extremely strict on what we do and what we don't do. So my mindset in the beginning was always to just say yes and then figure out how to do it later. You know, as long as it's not making pizza or something like that. It, um, <laughs> you could figure that out. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't know if you would pay me to do it, but uh, that's a different question. Uh, so, uh, uh, and then all of a sudden, Spacemaker called us and Spacemaker asked us, hey, do you guys have any architects who know programming and maybe computational design? And I said, yes. Mm. And then, uh, um, yeah, uh, so IT, like software companies called me and said, hey, do you know anyone who knows the Revit API? Yes. And so today, Reop has a, a list of clients and a list of services that spans quite wide uh, based on this mindset of always saying yes. So mm-hmm. we, it's we have pretty advanced software developers who are more like software developers than even computational designers or like people who are in web web technology and databases. Um, and then we have more like BIM managers uh, in the company who manage processes and people and then also people in between. So there's like a pretty nice scale of different people at Reop today that is like doing different things and have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, yeah. And then... Can I can I just jump in here before you continue on? And I'm just wondering with the problems that you're solving at Rio, are those the things that looping back to your hiring video that people should be mad at? Like you're solving the problems of things that are making people's lives difficult throughout yeah. the process. Yeah. 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 But today, not just that because uh, because of this mindset of always saying yes. So sometimes we're mm-hmm. doing things that uh, is good for business, but maybe it's not making a lot of people pissed. And uh, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, we just help out some software company solving their problem. So, um, but at the, at the core, uh, at the core, I suppose it's a willingness or a drive to solve problems together with other people uh, who share that same passion. I would say that that is a 
that's an important yeah how the important attribute of mm-hmm. of reop and uh, i think that there's lots and lots and lots of potential market potential in native architects and engineers with experience in the industry who know how to build a tool and who knows about automation who understands bim to uh to help out with specific solutions in different contexts um but eventually and you might say in retrospect that it was only a matter of time before really realized that but that is exactly what happened uh, is that like three two years ago uh, we had been solving the same problem over and over again uh, not all of them like it, the work that we did with spacemaker was different the work we did in some architectural firms and computational design was different um but uh it sometimes it feels like almost half of all the jobs that we were hired to do as consultants were uh we didn't know it at the time but were like poking into this problem that i now know uh that is that that anchor is solving so mm. that that was the birth of anchor Perfect, perfect segue. I before we, I know I asked you about Anchor, so before we jump into that, give me kind of the top hit list of the things that you're solving that people should be upset about if they don't know that Reop exists or these other these tools that you're building, because I think a lot of times, again, to get back to this, you're you're asking people to step back and evaluate. And it's hard to do that when you're in it, right? When you're deep in it all the time and it's just, you just accept it. This is the way that it is. And I've just got to push through and same, same problem, different project. I just, this is the way that I know how to do it. I'm going to keep doing it this way because they don't know there's, they don't know what they don't know. So what are the things that if you were just to kind of list off the top three or the top five things that people should be mad about, but not, maybe they don't realize that they're mad, that they should be mad about it because they just accepted it. What are those? What's that top list? Hmm, tough question. I uh, I always love how one of our very very first clients ever came to us, and this was still when I was working at Snöhetta, one of the biggest construction projects in Norway. Approached me at the time. They heard that I was freelancing and. Uh, and then around the same time, I was thinking of starting my own company. So they actually became our by far biggest client uh, over some time. And this was the new government quarters project in Norway. And they, uh, on that project, the BIM director, whose name is Morten, Morten Rader, he came from another big project and he was really not happy with how uh, Revit managed content across files. Um, So he came to me with a direct approach and said, I'm not happy with how Revit manages content across files. Do you want to look into building a solution as part of the design team on that project? So that was a really cool, really like, I Mm. could not have asked for a better project, a better client better problem um to work on in the beginning of, of this company and and uh, and that led to the to the product today that is called night runner that 
Reop sells as a licensed tool that synchronizes families and types and Revit settings across files on a nightly schedule uh, and saves people thousands of hours on at least on on big projects. So um, all this stuff, all this boring, shitty stuff that people sit and do in these tools, and not just Revit, all the BIM tools, they have their strengths and weaknesses, and they're kind of like old, old, old. Everyone is mm -hmm. like now trying to figure out what is next, but like if right. you go to the majority of architectural firms in the world, anywhere in the world, uh, on a good day, you will find a lot of people like doing things in Revit. Um, and there's so much time wasted on like managing Revit data, managing Revit files, Revit. I don't know how many Revit health check applications there are in the market, but there's quite a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. So there's so many mistakes yep. you can do and so many like you have to study this for like years before you really get good at Revit. And, and, uh, and I suppose like that, at least in the beginning, that was really what we were trying to help our clients be. And being so like kind of like being a, a, a team of experts who knew different things, but all had the feet in AEC, uh, who you could talk to uh, about these problems. So that's, that's a lot of what we are doing every day. We have like a set of clients that we work with on a continuous basis, and we develop a trusting relationship with these clients. Um, and then discuss all these things that are not really ideal. Every project is different, of course, in AC, and every team is different, and every nation is different. So it's always a new problem to solve. It's interesting to me in an industry, especially on the architecture and the the you know on the design team side, not necessarily the construction side, but the design team side. Everything is based on hours, right? We sell time for money. And yet there's this kind of deliberate um, workflow that is, it's not improving. It's like, I guess what I mean by deliberate is like, it's this entrenched workflow because you do have the people in a firm, in a larger firm who are creating the dynamo graphs and the grasshopper graphs and they're saving time. But, the, but you, you mentioned it earlier, they have a hard time implementing that at scale bringing it to the rest of the team there's also the kind of this attitude with a lot of the team was like stop showing me new stuff i don't i can't be distracted with a new way of working because i have so much work to do and yet like the conversation is yeah but you're wasting your time doing this stuff and you sell time for money wouldn't you like to get some of your time back so that you can do other things and it's a really tough battle to, to, I guess, communicate that in a coherent way that people really understand that there is, there are better ways to do things. Software can help you achieve that when they're also trying to balance just like, I got to get this project out the door, right? Mm -hmm. I have, to, and, and the way that I'm going to do that is the way that I've always done it because that's what I know. And this other distraction, I don't know about that. And so therefore there's some fear. And, you know, this is a, this internal battle that we're all seeing all over the place. And, and you're saying like the goal is to create applications that can save people thousands of hours. And if an executive hears that, they're like, give it to me, right? Mm -hmm. I will pay, I'll, I'll do it. But then getting it 
adopted and implemented in a in a firm in a re- on a project is so hard, right? Yeah. And that's where BIM managers and d- directors in digital practice are having such a hard time pushing mm. those boulders uphill because people don't really want to change. Like they're they're just not wired to constantly be searching for the better way to do it. They're wired to get the project done. Mm. And I know you see this all the time. I just wanted to kind of yeah, emphasize that for a moment because this battle it like from the outside it looks so it's so simple let's just solve it and it from the inside it's like unsolvable and so mm-hmm. you have these polar opposite situations happening at the same time like people will come from industries manufacturing industries and they want to apply what they've learned to architecture and then they get to architecture and they're like i had no idea it would be this hard hmm. right i had no idea you guys would be so difficult to change <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's because it's so multi-layered it is so deep the onion skins are like yeah. there's just so many layers to that i mean it goes to contracts insurance uh, licensure hmm. uh, permitting agencies like it, it, it's all of these things stacked on top of each other that you actually have to change at the same time yeah. to start seeing a difference yeah it's it's both extremely frustrating and uh also fascinating because it's hard it's really yeah, it's hard really problem. hard yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and easy problems are boring hard problems are fun i uh, yeah i yeah i i hear what you're saying completely agree a fun side comment or just i i just realized now uh, when you were saying that was that i called my um um uh, so I'm so I'm not the CEO of any of uh, my companies. They're not my companies. We have also partners, but uh, in the companies that I'm involved with, I'm not the CEO of any of them. So we have a CEO at Rio, we have a CEO at Anchor, and then there's a chairman who oversees the you know the financial well-being of uh, of these companies. And neither of these three people are me. So I called uh, uh, my chairman and I said, because I wake up in the morning sometimes and I have an idea, and usually those ideas are bad, uh, so I run them by my my chairman. (laughs) And uh, I told him, uh, his name is Jon, and I said, hey, Jon, you know what I want to do? I want to start an architectural firm. I'm not an architect, uh, and uh, but... I, I really love architects and I love architecture and I want to start an architecture architecture firm and I want to do it in the same way that I, we sell our services at Rio, like on a subscription model, which has been great. It's a great mm. way to work. Um, and I don't yet know if that's even remotely possible because there's like so many different complex mechanisms in this uh, uh, ours world. But... Uh, if it was possible, I think it would just be a, a fantastic way of working. Uh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by a subscription model for architecture? I, when I say subscription model, I mean like think subscription model because I haven't really thought this through. But uh, the way I think about it and the way we try to do it at Reop is kind of like how you buy the internet at home. Uh, it's that you have these different tiers and the different tiers, they give you... Uh, speed uh, but uh, uh, the internet uh, the the comp- where's my english the company that delivers the internet to your house uh, uh doesn't care uh, how how much you 
stream or how much you download. You know, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they they only care about the speed that you have. Or maybe a better analogy is my phone, my 4G or 5G subscription with my phone. Is that uh, they tell me that I can have like five gigabytes or 10 gigabytes or 20 gigabytes per month. Um, and then some months I use very few gigabytes and some months it's like during July when it's Tour de France and I'm on the beach, I'm streaming like, oh my, yeah. So so some months, Every day. yeah. <laughs> and, and they give you the opportunity to adjust this up and down based on your need. And usually you adjust up and then you forget to adjust down. And right. <laughs> <laughs> how, how and, convenient for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't care because the, mm-hmm. the price is relatively low per month the cost over a year or over 10 years is big because you have a recurring revenue and recurring revenue is like 10 times more worth than like hours revenue. Um, because of that, because your client don't ever really have an incentive to stop that subscription. If it's a relatively mm-hmm. low fee and you're getting what, you're, what you need. So I was thinking that uh, if we stop talking about hours uh, and start talking about value. And if we put a pretty low price and just make it recurring uh, and give the clients what they need when they need it, and then maybe it's like really low activity sometimes, higher activity sometimes, but you put the price somewhere so that you're, you know, making sure that it's, I don't know. I, I We kind of did that with Reop. I, I was be lying if I said every contract that we have is like that. It's not, but uh, we try to make as many uh, agreements as possible with that. And that's like exactly how a SaaS company operates and how Anchor is doing everything. So I don't know. Uh, That was my, maybe one day in the future, I'll start an architectural firm with this business model. It's an interesting business model because it basically self-selects the clients who are willing to do that right there's going to be some clients where it's just i just need this one-off little thing Mm -hmm. and they they could either subscribe to you and then turn it off Mm -hmm. right or they're not the right fit which Mm -hmm. is you know maybe more your idea because you want that recurring revenue is it it basically says if you're this kind of client who builds things and you're going to be building things for the next two decades and so it just makes sense for me to Every little request I have, I just throw it into your court and you as Reop or Anchor has to then balance the load, right? Yeah. They don't care. That's your job. Yeah. But they get access. They just get access because they are a subscriber. I think that's a really interesting idea. I, I like it. I like it a lot. I don't know if it works in reality, but <laughs> right, it's, right. But it yeah. is a it, it is a great way of working because the pressure on hours and making hours into a topic in every single conversation with your clients, it really hurts collaboration. And uh, I've seen that so many times. Yeah, yeah. And and the interesting thing about architecture from that point of view is that it it basically incentivizes everybody to do the least that they can do, right? And so... In, in America, with design, bid, build, especially, and I, it's, I don't know if it's like this where you are or not, but it's like, first of all, we're competing on RFP for the job, and it's the lowest fee is going to win. And then the it's a public project, so it needs to go out to bid to multiple bidders, then you pick the lowest bidder, right? And it's like, everything is based on the cheapest. And so we're incentivized on the design team to spend as little as time of, as possible 
on the design, which of course is going to make mistakes, leave things not finished, all of the things that come along with spending less time on a project. And mm-hmm. then you get the low bidder who's looking for problems, which of course there are problems because we've set it up that way, right? And so <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy uh, to to think that like this is a sustainable practice. And what we've all seen happen is the race to the bottom, right? Every There's always somebody who can do it for less. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they're going to do it well. It just means they're going to do it for less, right? Yeah. Uh, and and it usually means they're not going to do it well. It leads mm. to more problems. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think this idea of removing hours from the conversation, because I think you're right, it does time and time again. It's like, no, we can't do that because you're not paying for it. No, we can't do that because we don't have time. That's a scope increase. That means we need to renegotiate the fee or we need to do ad services. All of those things are negatives to a client because what do they want? Mm. They want the finished product. That's what they yeah. want, mm. right? They see architecture as a wasteful process because mm. it, it is, if the goal is to get the building, then everything we have to do, we have we still have to do it, but it's, it's like a byproduct yeah. of the final, right? And so... I think anything that hurts that process is it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. And and so maybe through regulation, they have to do it that way. But at the same time, if they didn't have to do it that way, they wouldn't choose to do it that way. And I think that's the future that we have to be worried about is people will find a way around the current way of doing things if they can really find a better way to do it that costs less or is faster or or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very curious how this landscape is going to look in five, ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it won't look like what it looks like now, right? So, I, someone that, will do something. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's we've buried the lead. What is Anchor? Tell us all about Anchor and what you're doing there. Anchor is the culmination of fifty percent of the jobs we did at Reop. Um, we'd be hired in different projects. And uh, just like I said uh, before, uh, we always said yes. So I was a computational BIM expert. I were doing double curved facades in Paris and uh, Beirut with uh, Snohetta. And then I started my company and I became this data person. And I I was never a data guy, (laughs) Uh, like 3D and and so on. But like uh, so many people called us to uh, to get our help in uh, in 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 building, whether it was a Dynamo script or a Revit add-in or a web application or the, like some solution to this problem that appeared in the industry without me knowing it, I had no mm. idea what was going on. Mm. But we kind of just got it on the desk all day long from a lot of companies across Europe, specifically uh, or s- mostly Europe. Um, so that, that was, a that was, a <laughs> maybe it's a strange story of a founder or, a, or, or a product, but I always say that anchor was made by the market. Uh, it was not my brainchild or some genius idea. I woke up in the morning when I wake up in the morning, I want to start architectural firms. <laughs> So, <laughs> so um, you're a masochist, man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I uh, yeah no. It, uh, so many companies and projects called us desperate for help 
uh, with this like data quality problem that appeared in the in the industry, and uh, I learned about it uh, through all those projects that we got. So yeah, Anchor was made by the market, and the market really started needing uh, really high quality BIM, really like perverdedly high quality BIM. (laughs) It's what it says on the tin that hardly anybody delivers, right? It's like, because again, the process is so hard that we're incentivized to do shortcuts all the time, right? Whatever can be done to shortcut this process, we will do it because it saves us. We have to hit the deadline. I won't say it saves us time because it actually costs us time in the future, right? When we do those shortcuts, but they want the thing that they were promised, which was, I want to be able to proactively make decisions based on good data hmm. for, you know, that, for that process. And it, and it's so hard to do that when the shortcuts yeah. work their way into the system that break that process from actually delivering on that promise. So what, what we, what we realized, I suppose, uh, during this whole process of, of people uh, needing uh, data quality uh, in in and around the BIM was that uh, what, what what was going on in the in the contractor space and in the building owner space is that where this where this came from uh, was uh, and this when I say this it's the phenomenon of kind of like digital twin aspirations based on BIM. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a meeting once with a bunch of building owners and directors, all like senior people to me and a bunch of engineers. And I remember one of the engineers were like asking in disbelief, are you expecting us to build a digital twin with Revit? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> right. and, uh, and, and that was like maybe how you would say in Norway, like put on the edge. Uh, but uh, But it's kind of, it's what's coming. And uh, a lot of architectural firms are not ready for this. And a lot of engineering firms are trying to get ready for it. A lot of contractor firms in Europe are starting to build the processes for construction sites that uses data instead of graphics. Um, And that in many places is called the digital construction. And in Norway and Scandinavia and the Nordic countries and across Europe, that's like different things. When I go to the US and I talk about digital construction, they have a, maybe it means something else. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, most of the people, most of the contractors that uh, suffer from this problem that Anchor is solving um, use uh, some sort of BIM-fueled data-driven process. Uh, where they stream BIM into different tablets or 3D viewers or databases or whatever. They want to use the data in the BIM downstream in their processes, and they can't because uh, you you basically need so much additional data uh, connected with this BIM. And again, like the architects are already short on hours and you're asking them to add a bunch, you know, you need the LOD property, you need the control zone mm-hmm. property, you need the classification system, you need all this additional data on every More single stuff. element mm-hmm. in your BIM. Right. Um, so, yeah. And it's the same with the building owners, although uh, uh, that like digital twin dream for the building owners seem to be a little bit uh, less mature than digital construction, mm-hmm. but it's the same. It's the same thing. I'm talking about this at Autodesk University next week. 
So the need for data has triggered the need among contractors and owners to have BIM for whatever they are going to do with it has triggered a request for a lot of additional information that people in the design firms are having a real hard time delivering. Like massively hard time. Because is it is that because it's assumed that you will still do the project on the same schedule with the same resources yes. as before, yes. but now we're just asking for more stuff, right? Yes. And so there's never this kind of conversation around we have to rethink the process. We have to reset expectations. That's not happening. And I don't understand why that's not happening. No, I, d I don't either. I don't understand it. But it, it, it creeps into the contracts uh, that the architects yeah. and engineers are signing. And then they're surprised? They're surprised yeah. by it? Yeah. yeah. Usually no at the end of the project, things. someone asks, yeah. Yeah, what about the digital twin? And you're like, what, what do you mean, digital twin? Oh, no, that thing in the last page of the contract that you signed. The thing you signed. Right. Yeah. And right. it becomes uh, it, uh, so this becomes uh, like a massive headache. A lot of the owners, a lot of the clients have started understanding that in order to avoid this happening, they they start asking for that information already from day one. Uh, and uh, and that again reinforces the headache because hmm, a lot of architectural firms, I suppose. <laughs> see what they are signing and and okay you're going to have a digital twin at the end of the project but it will be at the end of the project we'll do our rabbit how we always did yeah. and then on the final day we add all the properties we'll, <laughs> we'll figure that out later i mean it was like you you said i always say yes right and and without maybe even understanding the what you were signing yourself up for right yeah. but that that is exactly what happens yeah. all the time i'm curious though from the owner's side do you see them actually using this or are they just proactively kind of setting themselves up for something in the future? Do you really see them like needing this information and then using it to make decisions in operations and in facilities maintenance and things like that? Or are they just kind of, is this an insurance policy for something maybe in the future? From what I'm seeing, it is it looks more like an insurance policy for the future than an actual actual usage. And this is problematic because, uh, of mm -hmm. course, all our friends, the architects and engineers, know this. So they are really That's having exactly. a hard time. What am I, why am I doing this? This hurts our timeline. It, like I don't like right. it and nobody's going to use it. And if no one's going to use it, yeah. Yeah, but they are going to use it. They just don't know yet for what and then you can ask yeah but how do you know what data to ask for if you don't know what right. you're going to use it for and and they will say yeah but it's better to have something than nothing uh and uh and they are also preparing i mean let me give you an example in norway we build hospitals every 50 years i was in one the whole last week with my baby and we really need new hospitals in Norway because the one I was in, e even today, uh, is 50 years old. So we build hospitals every 15 years, 50 years. So this means right now there are 17 hospital projects happening in Norway. And mm. if you work as an architect for one of these projects, you have like a massive, massive information requirement document that you have to deliver on a weekly basis. 
And the reason why they are doing it, it's not like maybe imagine that you have like every single element in Revit needs to have what 100 parameters, text parameters and booleans and numbers in addition yeah. to all the normal width, height, length, material, and Geometry. so on. Yeah, yeah right. Mm -hmm. But uh, they are saying, we don't know exactly what we are going to use all this data for in the future, but we know 100% sure that they all need to be the same. If hospital A and hospital B and hospital C have different architects, they are going to be different BIM. That's just right. how it is. Yep. And uh, the hospital construction agency, they really need hospital A, B, and C to be the same. So they can compare it. Yeah. So is that is that a national initiative? Is that a regulation put in place like, like yeah. Kobe or yeah, ISO? Yeah. Right? Okay. Exactly like Kobe and ISO. So... So, and this is just increasing and it's massively increasing at an exponential rate and everyone is, is going to hit everyone, 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 and uh, nobody really has a solution to it. Um, and uh, it's a combination of BIM, custom information requirements, like the, the hospital guys, they have information requirements and the railroad guys, they have information requirements. So it depends on who you're working for. But then mm. there's also going to be like national and regional standards uh, like Eurocode and stuff that I'm sure that you have in the States um, that you have to comply with. So there's going to be a mishmash of a lot of things because all these business people and facility managers and the contractors, like everyone who is not inside your Revit sphere is going to want to use the data that you're producing. Yeah. And and this, I mean, I, I'm going to make an assumption here is that there's no national initiative to help firms evolve to the point where they can legitimately say, we realize that we're going to do this. Here's how we're going to do it. Everybody's just left up to deal with this on their own. And they're all going to solve it differently, right? I mean, this is this is a problem everywhere. Which is why they, some of them, not all of them, they called us and asked, "Hey, we have a we have a gigantic problem. We didn't see the the last page yeah. of the contract, and we need right. a Dynamo script that does this, or Revit add-in that does this, or you know, whatever." Um, so yeah, exactly, that's what happened. These things kind of like just crept silently into. Right our universe and uh i don't think anyone was prepared for it that is the way that things change in this industry though is that the yeah. clients and the owners force it to happen not the other way around we're not mm -hmm. really pushing at the grassroots level or at the early stages of projects to i think we are in some ways i mean with sustainability this has always been an issue in the united states is there will be firms pushing and there will be clients saying no thank you right mm -hmm. we don't want to pay for that now yeah. and so so there has always been that but then there's this this other side where they're pulling us into it mm. and they're saying here's what we demand you have to do it if you want to be uh, included on this project yeah. and that is where real change i think happens because we're, we're just forced to do it by the owners and the clients yeah i mean this is a 
enforce is the is the right word because if you don't want to do it, it's like you say you you don't get to work on this project. This is not a negotiable uh, <laughs> term in the contract. So uh, because it, it yeah probably because I mean there's two different things you you mentioned. There's digital construction. There's the the contractors and there's the owners. Um, and I think that more for the owners, uh, they now know that just like you needed a drawing archive, you need a BIM archive or a data archive. And it's imperative that data archive is standardized and consistent and high quality. Uh, because if it's not the data, if the data is bad, anything that you do to use the data is going to be useless. Um, the need for the contractors, at least in Northern Europe, is a little bit different because they have immediate use uh, right now. They And they need much less data, but they completely are, um, how do you say, it? they absolutely need that data to be 100% correct. There's mm -hmm. a lot of contractors now who are starting to plan for doing direct quantity takeoffs and procurement and manufacturing straight from the BIM. And as you can imagine, you know, if one text parameter is wrong in Revit, that is going to lead to a lot of problems and it it already is. But that, so these two clients that we have kind of have a little bit of a different uh, dynamic there, but they, they, they both need the same thing. And that is driving this change. Mm-hmm. So you're solving that specific problem and and is it difficult for you to I mean it doesn't sound like it would be difficult is it difficult for you to find clients who are going into this willingly or are they just saying like because I see this with architects and I'm sure engineers a lot like every project's different right and so if we don't need to know any information about swimming pools or code around swimming pools on this project like I'll figure that out later when a project maybe arises where I do is it like that with with this kind of a analogy where now all of a sudden they need to know this stuff. They don't have anyone on staff who is up on the latest information so they can call you because you are right. And then you can offer that service to them. Is that where you see yourselves just really being the expert on this side of the data process behind the digital twin to meet a standard? And you are the expert that they can then tap into to deliver exactly that solution. Well, yeah, uh, not me, but the product yeah. anchor. I mean, the the what I what I know that we will do and where we will arrive is in a is in a place where we are actually, hopefully, if we are able to pull it off. Uh, able to liberate a lot of architects and engineers from even having to deal with this. So nice. the f the future, and this is like, yeah, I'm spoiling the end slide at my Autodesk University presentation next next this week. Will come but, out uh, after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I I I talk about a future where you connect your BIM or CAD or whatever to a solution, and then you connect your standards. Uh, the ISO standard, or, and then mm -hmm. your clients' information requirements, and then uh, based on the history that you have done in previous projects and these different data sources, we could quite easily just generate that data for you. 
And uh, whether it's like call it AI or uh, certainly it will be like some sort of language model that, that understands the requirements and the standards. But like you have BIM, BIM is data, you have all these documents, whether, whether you're tapping into a database of information requirements or it's a PDF or an Excel spreadsheet or even like one of our clients have it in PowerPoint. <laughs> So, <laughs> so there's like, yeah, all these rules, you know, and, uh, and, and my, uh, my, my beautiful, beautiful dream uh, with Anchor is where you have this dynamic database where the requirements are changing during the process of the project. I, our first client had 305 revisions of the information requirement document. And how do you deal wow. with that when you can't even change the name of a shared parameter in Revit? So, <laughs> so like you, you want to have like this dynamic database where all this data is living. And when I say living, it is living. It's changing constantly depending active, on. Right. Yeah, it's active. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. if we're able to do that, then whatever BIM tool you're using uh, even you could imagine just doing blobs in Rhino or SketchUp, and then we could see what it is. Oh, this is probably a window. This is probably a door. This is probably a this. This mm -hmm. is probably a that. And then assume that it's something and then give it a bunch of data based on, uh, like I said before, based on what you've done before, mm -hmm. based on the requirements that your client has. And mm -hmm. then you can, I don't know if, I don't it's at least it's a dream. Uh probably yeah. there will always have to be some human input but but uh and it, it and the 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 cool thing about this is that it's very doable. Um actually I could probably share with you. I have a screenshot from a Slack message that I received 4 days ago from our engineering team is that this week, now when I'm talking with you, this week is the week we start implementing the AI and Anchor. And then, uh, and, and so it seems to be really doable because what you do in Anchor today is you, you connect your BIM to Anchor. Anchor is a database, lives on the web. It has a web front end and there's like a user interface and where you, it's super boring. It's all just numbers and text. Um, and uh, it has a really nice uh, interaction with Revit, where it only syncs the changes, and you can do you can do whatever you want in Revit and model whatever you want in Revit. And every time you sync, you we take the, the little bit that changed and push it into the database and make sure it's always live in a work shared environment. And then we combine that with the information requirements of the clients. So you import. Say you work for the hospital construction agency and you have like 250 parameters or properties that you need to define on walls and ducts and rebar and so on. And then what people today do in Anchor is you import the BIM, you import information requirements, and then you start doing things, right? New table, new this, new that. You define the rules yourself, uh, human beings. Uh, some of them used to be BIM managers, some of them used to be architects, but they're like maybe semi-data scientists in Anchor today. And 
and if we're able to pull off this work with the the just basically generating the content in anchor mm -hmm. uh we will have that future that i talked about before so you're talking about the user kind of being the switchboard operator that's like yeah. wiring up those things at anchor but you're saying now maybe with ai you can actually have it do the analysis exactly and i'm sure you're still going to want some oversight from a, a human right like, yeah. it's just like any ai system now it's like uh, don't completely take it at its word like still check the work right yeah. but you're going to get it's just going to get better and better and better over time yeah. and i can imagine you used the word earlier liberating yeah i can only imagine how freeing and liberating that would feel for somebody to be completely overwhelmed with these requirements to say, look, we have a solution that's going to make it easy. And I, I <laughs> who's not going to want that, right? That that's going to be one of those things where it's just like, oh, thank God that, that somebody's figured this out because I waited long enough to not have to learn it on my own, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I waited long good, enough. Good call. <laughs> I waited. I waited too long, but but now I can. There's a there is a solution out there to yeah. make to liberate me from having to do that. Yeah. And I, I, it's just all the stars align for me. All the stars mm -hmm. align for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'll try not to get too emotional here about like all connected <laughs> with my childhood and my mom and blah, 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 blah. But, yeah. but it really feels very purposeful because we are wasting an entire generation of architects' brain capacity and passion mm -hmm. and telling them to be data managers and BIM yeah. people and yeah. they shouldn't. Yeah, it's mundane. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It kind of kills the morale. I mean, there are definitely people who see the beauty in that in that table, right? They see, they're like reading the matrix, and they totally get it. But that's it's for them, right? Yeah. And and but I think you're right for the for the kid who sings and plays Legos on the floor for every hour of the day, like that is a their effort is in many ways wasted by having yeah. to deal with with this kind of stuff. Yeah. So my my theory, and I I feel pretty confident about this theory, is that we're architects and engineers are getting really good at BIM, three D modeling, parametric three mm -hmm. D modeling, designing space, moving things around, stretch, pull, push, stacking things. Like I see people getting better and better and better at this. Like we get the coordinate mm -hmm. systems okay. You can do collision control. Like three D and geometry is never going to be a problem for an architect and engineer because it's mm -hmm. intuitive. It's something right. that we do and think about and breathe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but all this like data world, uh, oh my God, like, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a different, it's a different beast. Yeah. 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 Well, you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> <laughs> you really are. I think, I mean, you think about you think about the the attitude that people have around this stuff and it's like thank goodness somebody cares enough about this and 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 you're getting tons of value out of it by by solving this problem right like you said yeah. it feels very purposeful and the stars have aligned uh, that to me really shows that like it takes all kinds of people 
in the AEC industry. It really takes all kinds of people who do all kinds of very different things, much to like the education side, like that doesn't really tell that story. It's like, there's three different roles, right? No, mm -hmm. there, there's, there's 500 different roles in AEC. And people can specialize or they can generalize or they can pick a topic or a category and create this really uncommon trajectory to solve problems in this industry because the industry is so varied in the problem set that I think yeah. it's it's uh, there's there's opportunity for everybody. And so uh, I, I, I do see a lot of hope there because um, there are so many possibilities for people to find a way into this industry and to find purpose in this industry. And it doesn't have to just be the traditional three possible paths kind of a thing. So no. it's really incredible. And I think telling stories like this, like the one that you've told today, illuminate that for so many people just to say like, okay, I'm not the weird person who thinks I, I feel like, I feel like a lot of people are going to feel heard or feel seen by just hearing this conversation to say, man, there's, I can do so much. And, and I, this all goes back to your video, right? Trying to put out the call, right? You put out the bat signal <laughs> to say like, here's what we're looking for. And there are so many people who, before seeing that light go on, just feel isolated, right? And and mm -hmm. I feel like like you have one version of that story. There's still mm -hmm. 500 other versions of the story even, but it's just a great example to, to share with everyone. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me today and that we can share it with everybody. It's, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me to come. And I, I have to say that once my, my daughter was born on the night until Tuesday last week, uh, we normally have like a two week birth holiday in Norway mm. and I canceled mm -hmm. all my meetings except yours. Wow. So I'm, and I'm very happy that uh, we stuck to this appointment because I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, I hope your daughter appreciates this in the future because uh, you contributed maybe, a lot to the industry maybe, today. I, I appreciate it. Maybe, yeah, maybe. She, maybe, <laughs> we'll maybe see. she'll see it. The internet doesn't forget, so it'll, it'll no. still be out there. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. So, <laughs> Well, Hovard, this has been an amazing conversation, and I want you to just quickly share places where people can find you online. I'll include links to everything in the show notes for this episode, but where can people find out more about what you're doing? I think uh, a few years ago, I was like on all the social media, and uh, now I'm focusing mostly on LinkedIn. Uh, so if you search me up, there are not too many Voshaugs in this world. There are, mm. are, 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 my last name is kind of rare. So if you just get the spelling of that right, I th I'll think you find me. But uh, if you want to get in touch with me, then LinkedIn is a, is a good place to start, I think. Great. Well, uh, like I said, this episode won't be out before AU, but I will see you at AU. And I'm looking forward hey. to meeting you in person. It'll be fun. Great. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. And until next time. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co and I'll talk to you again next week.